Well, before I begin the sermon and get into that, I am just very briefly going to tune all of y'all out that are here and speak directly to the camera, because I know that my mom is watching, and I just want to say happy birthday, mom. Amen. Amen. And so today's sermon is entitled, A Contrast in Faith. A Contrast in Faith. And before we move too far into this, let's go ahead and expand upon the meaning of the word contrast. The dictionary definition is to compare in order to show unlikeness or differences, or to note the opposite natures, purposes, etc. of something. So when we're talking about a contrast in faith today, we're speaking on faith, but we're speaking on faiths that are based on one or two things, two things that are different, two things that are opposite, two things that are contradictory. This morning, we will be talking about faith in yourself and faith in Jesus. Because we're really, in this discussion, we're talking about two separate gospels here. Galatians 1 6 through 7, our scripture reading for this morning, it says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But here's the question. How do we know whether we have placed our faith in ourselves or whether we have placed our faith in Jesus. I'm willing to say that most of the time, most of the time, this becomes apparent by our actions, by our actions. Faith leads to action. So what do our actions say about our faith? James 2.17 states that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, we're going to spend some time this morning talking about a contrast in faith, and the best illustration of that, I believe, from the Bible is by looking at Peter and by looking at Judas. Both of these men, they were very similar in a lot of ways, right? They were both disciples. They were both loved by Jesus. They were both wooed by Jesus. They both eventually betrayed Jesus, and both of them would regret that betrayal. How do you think Jesus felt knowing that two of his closest friends, right? That Jesus had hundreds of disciples, but those 12 that were very close to him, two of them would betray him. How do you think that made him feel? Did he treat them differently? Did he deny them a place at the communion table? Did he kick them out of the group? That's a no on all accounts. Instead, he continued loving them. Jesus didn't treat either man differently. So why did their stories 
looked so drastically different. This brings us back to the title of our sermon, A Contrast in Faith. After the death of Jesus, a number of things became clear. Judas placed his faith in himself, in his works, in his own wisdom, in his own abilities. But Peter placed his faith in Jesus. He was sold out for grace. All of his trust was placed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Judas wound up hanging from a tree while Peter ended up at the feet of Jesus on a beach. And how do we know? How do we know that Peter got it right? There's a contrast in faith, right? Two different kinds of faith here between Judas and Peter. How do we know that Peter got it right? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Galatians 2.16, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, I realize that whenever we have this discussion, whenever it's brought up, that that sometimes we want to ask, well, where does obedience come in? Where does obedience come in to this discussion about grace? And my answer along with the the New Testament writers, is that we've got to stop watering down the gospel by adding the law to it. We've got to stop watering down the gospel by adding the law to it. Because when it comes to salvation, it is not quid quo pro. It is not quid quo pro. Now, we looked at more in depth into this just a couple of weeks ago, right? We looked at all of these covenants that God had made throughout the Old Testament. We saw that he made covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with with Moses personally, but in a a broader sense, all of Israel, and then eventually King David as well. And in all of these covenants, God stated the part that he would do, the end of the bargain that he would would uphold, and then the human partners would state their end of the bargain. This is what we will do. And in each of these covenants, humanity broke their end of the deal (laughs) over and over and over and over. And that's why Jesus came. God would become man in order to up hold the human side of the covenantal promise. This is the new covenant. And because Jesus is involved, instead of sinful, erring humanity, it's referred to as the better covenant. Hebrews 8, 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry Inasmuch as he, Jesus, is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now, when we talked about that, this is not saying that God's old promises were bad, right? 
God's promises hold true, but it's our promises, human promises that fall flat over and over and over. Jesus is the faithful covenant partner that we were all made to be, but failed at. Jesus stood in our place to create a better covenant. And that is why we can have the assurance of salvation, because we are not dependent upon ourselves. We are dependent upon Jesus. We are dependent upon Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus stands in our place. Jesus stands in our place, and he offered his life for ours. And that is why Paul can state in Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Justification comes through faith in Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I really love the way Ellen White put it when she was talking about the legalism that was taking place in Jesus's day. In chapter two of her book on the life of Jesus, which is entitled The Desire of Ages, she wrote this. But with too many of the people, obedience was not prompted by love. The motive was selfish. Now you see what she's saying here. Obedience isn't the problem. It's what is prompting us to obedience that can be a blessing or a problem. She continues, but the Jews lost the spiritual life from their ceremonies and clung to the dead forms. They trusted to the sacrifices and ordinances themselves instead of resting upon him to whom they pointed. In order to supply the place of that which they had lost, the priests and rabbis multiplied requirements of their own. And the more rigid they grew, the less of the love of God was manifested. And so this this concept of legalism and perverting the faith-based aspect of salvation, it isn't just sad, it's also dangerous. It weighs people down with burdensome rules and nitpicking injunctions to the point that people can find no rest from their guilty consciences their own guilty consciences. And so she goes on to state that Satan himself worked through this type of legalism to lower and confuse humanity's understanding of the very character of God. And this is why I am, have been, and will continue to be insistent to present you with the unperverted, unwatered-down gospel message on Sabbath mornings. So again, your works do not save you, only Jesus can. That is the gospel message. This is the new covenant. Now, does that mean that the law is bad? Does that mean the law should be thrown out? No, 
right? I hope all of us can say, along with Paul and the other New Testament writers, God forbid, God forbid. But when it comes to the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus, works and law-keeping do not need to enter into the conversation. Obedience to God comes only through the power of the Holy Spirit which is a symptom of salvation, not a prerequisite of it. So what else can we learn from this story? What else can we learn from Jesus in this story? In the way that Jesus treated Peter, in the way that Jesus treated Judas, we find an example of how we should deal with those amongst us who we may feel are not on the right track. When does Jesus tell Judas to leave the group? When does he publicly shame or out him? You don't don't see it happening. Even there in the upper room, he didn't do that, right? He indicates to John, but in private, who it is, and he doesn't even say his name. He does it by a sign, right? Whoever takes this bread that I dip. He corrects Judas when he says something wrong, yes. But he did that for Peter as well. And if you're familiar with the gospel stories, you'll know that he he did it more so with Peter, more often with Peter. Elsewhere, though, Jesus said this, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. He allows the wheat to grow with the tares and continues to show the same love and acceptance. Remember, we mentioned last week when we had communion that that Jesus washed Judas's feet. I mean, Judas was right there on, on the cusp right on the precipice of stepping out and betraying Jesus. And Jesus knew this. He knew it was coming, yet he still washed his feet. Jesus did not deal any sharp rebuke for Judas's covetousness and selfishness, but instead exuded divine patience with this erring soul. Maybe some of us have experienced (laughs) some of that divine patience from God and know how amazing it is and how much is needed. Jesus does not reject Judas. It is ultimately Judas that rejects Jesus's hand of forgiveness. Instead of accepting Jesus's offer of freedom from sin and an invitation to walk in the light, Judas chose to stay shackled to his sins and character defects. He held on to his evil desires, his vengeful passions, and dark, sullen thoughts until Satan was able to take complete control. And because of that, because of Judas's choice, his choice to trust in himself instead of in God, he eventually became a representative for the enemy of Christ. Jesus also doesn't try to stop anyone from exercising their own free will. He never seeks to control 
or take away anybody's self-determination, even in dealing with Judas. Now, that, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. But it's what Jesus did. Jesus, Jesus, Judas was unwilling to let go of his idea of who he thought Messiah should be, what Messiah should do, how Messiah should act, and ultimately hangs on to that desire until his own death. In dealing with conflict in the church and those that we believe may not be on the right track, what can we learn from Jesus' example on how he dealt with Judas? And how can we apply this in a way that leads to greater unity? The main thrust of this sermon is, is, is a reminder that there is only one true gospel. And I've talked to many of you here, and, and I know that righteousness by works isn't a problem for you. So, so keep these three things in mind. There is only one true gospel. Jesus never tried to kick anyone out, and Jesus never tried to bypass someone's free will. Hold on to those and understand that we may not agree with everyone. We may not agree with everyone. We may even see someone living or teaching some other gospel. Even so, follow Jesus' example. May you today see that Jesus cares deeply for you, that you are the love and focus of his soul, the reason and purpose why he died. May you know in your heart that he never gives up on you. May you see the joy of the resurrection and that the reason Jesus came was to deal with all the ways that you and I have failed him. He came to deal with that. May we as a community of believers remember that that control or, or shaming somebody isn't Christ's example. That forced or coerced compliance is not his way. May we simply look to Jesus and never give up on anyone else because he never gives up on us. And as we look at the lives of Peter and Judas, seeing with clarity that they do indeed represent a a contrast in faith, may we choose to place our trust and all of it, not in ourselves, but completely in Jesus. Because he is the author and finisher of our faith. And before we have our closing prayer, I want to invite Sarah Shepard to to come forward to just stand at the foot of the steps. She is our elder in charge for today. I'm going to do so as well after the benediction. And and for those of you that would like to be dismissed and just get on over to the fellowship lunch, you can do so. But if there's anybody here that has any any specific needs, 
any specific requests, maybe a specific praise that you would like to, to share. Sarah or I, we, we would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you and lift your petition, lift your praise up to the throne of grace. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, Lord, we, we know that we are constantly in this, this battle against the flesh, this battle to trust ourselves, to trust our instincts, to trust our abilities and our wisdom, the things that we know. But Lord, help us to get to a place where we trust you above all of that. Lord, we can look back at all the covenants in the Old Testament and see how they were broken over and over and over and not by you, but by the human element. But Lord, you are the God of making things right. You are a mighty fixer and you sent Jesus to become a human and to stand in place of us where we have failed. So we can still see that human divine covenant we can still grasp onto the promises knowing that we, if we choose you, if we place our faith completely in you, can have the assurance of salvation. And we can look forward knowing that as dark as this world may get, as difficult as our days may be, that we can hold on to the blessed hope and believe that Jesus is coming back soon. Lord, as we deal with difficult people, as we deal with people much like ourselves. We butt heads, we don't agree, we're pulling in opposite directions. Lord, give us the grace and patience of Jesus to love them in spite of that. And may we pray that, Lord, if we are the ones being stubborn, if we are the ones with our heads stuck in the mud, that you would give them the grace to love us and be patient with us. Lord, we wanna be unified as a body and we want to be unified because Jesus is the head of this church. Lord, we give ourselves to you. We give all of these petitions to you. And we ask that your will would be done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.